The sport of gentlemen and ladies began in members-only country clubs by men and women dressed in crisp white and has always been the most genteel of games. Or has it? When there's winning and losing at stake, how long can the manners last? Don't bang your racket on the net post, young man. Say, what did you call me? Yes, I'm talking to you. Listen, buddy, I'll take that racket and shove it down your pampered throat. <laughs> Tennis, it's really a war out there. Tennis isn't the kind of sport that you associate confrontation with, mm. player on player, is it? It's one of those sports where you're separated by distance, not only distance, but a net. Mm. And the only time they really come in contact with each other is on the changeover. But there have been some instances, Remo, in the history of this sport where tempers have flared and there has been some physical contact. Give me the tool. Come on. There's one of the first recorded instances, I think, that you know about, which is the 1922, no less, mm. Wimbledon final. Yes. Now, this was the final between Susan Longland and Mola Mallory. Susan Longland from France, Mola Mallory from the US. Now, okay, I'm going to come clean here, Buzz. This is not technically a physical confrontation, but it was very close and fascinating because of when it occurred. We're talking 1922 and we're talking Wimbledon final. So just stay with me and I'll give you a bit of backstory here. Can I just jump in for a second? Yeah. But women. Well, yes. Yes. You can throw that in, but I didn't want to jump in and I didn't want to be sexist, but you have. In the context of the time, though, it was so oh, much yeah. less acceptable for women to mm. show any kind of aggression. Mm. So, yeah, there you yes. go. Yes. Serve back at you, 15 love. Thank you. Now, Molly Mallory was a Norwegian and she had immigrated to America. She became the national champion. She won the national title eight times, no less, by the time she retired. So she could play. She could play. She, she could play and she was well regarded. Now, just to give you a little bit of insight into the character of Mola Mallory, a man called Robert Kelleher, he was a former president of the United States Tennis Association, but he was a ball boy as a child for Mola Mallory. And this is what he said about Mola Mallory. She looked and acted tough. And when she was on the court hitting tennis balls, she walked around in a manner that said, you better look out or she'd deck you. She was a fighter. Wow, so she, interesting. She's on one side of the net. Are you with me here, Buzz? Crazy Norwegians. Ooh, okay. On the other side of the net... Can I just say hello to anyone listening in Norway? We love you and keep listening. We do indeed. And Buzz, uh, we love you in Norwegian is? The same as it is in Norwegian. Thank you. Susan Longman, of course... From France. Ah, uh, Susan. Considered the greatest. Suzanne. Suzanne, yeah. That she was considered then to be the greatest woman yeah. player of all time. Not far now. No. A larger than life figure, and I think we can call her one of the first genuine global sporting figures. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. These two players had previously met in the 1921 US Championships, and essentially, Moller Mallory was cleaning Longland's clock, just absolutely wiping the floor with her. At which point, Longland started developing a cough, which gradually got worse, to the point where she had to retire from the match. So, 
that's where we leave it until these two players meet again a year later in the Wimbledon final. There was a lot of controversy about Longland's default, of course, a lot of press coming out and saying that she faked it, that she couldn't basically, in America, as they would say, couldn't take a beating. The thought was, if you're a true champion, when your time's up, you take your beating the way you should. Yeah. Sounds very English, doesn't it? It does. Yes, but anyway. Things weren't helped, Buzz, when on the night that she forfeited that match, she was caught in a nightclub, snapped by photographers, dancing. And yes, she was caught mid-rumba with her doctor, but that still, that still didn't absolve her. No. <laughs> okay, so it didn't wash with the public and the press at large. By the time the two meet at Wimbledon, there's, there's some unfinished business. Yeah, it's a build-up. That's all clear? Yeah, We've got the build-up here? Absolutely. Okay. This is great. I'm on the edge of my seat. Okay, well... He, oh, sorry, I'm just on the edge of my Readjust here. Here's the money shot here. And this is a, a passage from The Goddess and the American Girl, a great book by Larry Engelman. This is what he said about the match at the time. So they're playing the Wimbledon final, these two girls. Moller took her own service and broke Suzanne's to take a two-love lead. At the net... For the first time in memory, as officials watched, the two women exchanged bitter words and it appeared at one moment as if they would attempt to strike each other. Buzz, any idea what you think the words that were exchanged would have been and then for them to... Look, what would have happened? Would a fist have been raised? A racket? Like, for someone to say that they were threatening to strike each other. The two women exchanged bitter words. Is that what you Bitter said? words. So I wonder if Mallory, that's her name, yes. Mola Mallory, I wonder if she said something to Longland like, well, you know, cough now, lady. Cough it up. Yeah. I would love to know what the words were. What and, would I and who was the first to say something? Yeah. That's the interesting thing because would Longland have challenged her or would it have been Mallory mm. sort of twisting the knife, so to speak, as if to say, well, I've, I've still got you. Mm. You're still in my pocket. Well, what would have to be said to you, Buzz, for you to want to strike somebody? What words would have to reach your ears for you to want to clench your fist and drive it into the face of somebody? Why are you wearing those shoes? That's enough to set you off. It has been before. Jeez, I'm so glad I didn't pass that comment on your shoes. Lovely shoes, Buzz. Lovely shoes. Anyway, Longland went on and avenged her loss, basically destroyed Mallory, 6-2-6 love in 26 minutes. She won 6-2-6 love after being 2 love down. Yeah, she peeled off 12 games in what is... I believe still the shortest final in a Grand Slam tournament on record. But I don't get it. Mallory was that superior in the US. Long Long actually forfeited in order not to be absolutely demolished. Mm. Mallory goes up to love. Bitter words are exchanged. And Long Long wins six love, six love from there. Well, maybe Long Long wasn't faking it. Have you considered that option, that she was actually coming down with something? I'm sorry, I hadn't considered that option. Or were the words had an impact. Could have been. Upon Mallory, mm. maybe Longland had gone away and done some research at particular words mm. that would get into Mallory's psyche. Yeah. Some kind of Norwegian voodoo, perhaps. Yes, Norwegian voodoo. You just don't hear those words together very often. No. Well, probably too often now. Once too often. <laughs> So there you go. So that's, okay. that, that's our entree yeah. in. And as I say, they didn't come to blows, but it's what a surprise. All those years ago, two women, final of Wimbledon. Yeah. Fists wow. clenched, arms raised. 
<laughs> now that's unexpected, right? This next one, not, 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 not at all. Jimmy Connors mm. versus John McEnroe, an exhibition, an exhibition match, no less. Not even, not I even know. A, a, Can you believe it? Yeah. They're not even playing for anything no. except for the crowd. They so hate each other even in an exhibition match. So this is 1982. I think it went under the banner of an exhibition of hatred was how they promoted <laughs> this one. Complains about the lane call. <laughs> he just climbed over the net. Uh-oh, now all of the officials are around. I think what he's really complaining about is the delay that McEnroe had exercised a moment ago. So in this match, Connors actually crosses the net. Mm. Now, Macro must have been doing some carry-on, let's face it. Connors crosses the net, and he goes to talk to McEnroe, and he does that Connors thing where he wags mm. his finger at him. Oh. Right? That really theatrical wag he's got of his finger. Oh, yeah. That's really funny. And it, and it can be quite annoying. And no. McEnroe didn't like it. No. Interesting, McEnroe saw Connors approaching and he just looked rather shy, actually, didn't he? He didn't look like he was up for a fight. Mm. But then it kind of escalated a little bit. He thought, well, what's going to happen here? Yeah. But, um, you know, then again, Johnny Mack, let's face it, was known for these explosions that these days would never be tolerated. There was never. push and shove there. Uh, push and shove? There was physical contact made. There was. There was physical contact made and the whole symbolism of crossing over the, the net, net. Which you don't do. You don't do. You're invading personal space and you're making a rather big statement. Now, I don't know what that statement is exactly, but it's pretty big and it's not friendly. It's not like, hi, neighbour, how you doing? Just coming to check on you. It's not that sort of statement, no, is it? It's more like going over to your neighbour's place and trying on their pants. Trying on their pants, asking if you can borrow their lawnmower with no intention of returning it. That's right. He's got, my, he's got my pants, he's got my lawnmower, no. and I'm not going to see him again. That's the sort of statement. I should have said no, but I couldn't. He was wagging his finger at me. Mm. But anyway. But that's an interesting one. And, and like we said, not exactly, what's the word, unexpected between no. those two, because there was no love loss between yeah. those two. I think that might be the only instance, though, where they've actually In, in reality, in, but in their imaginations. Oh. Like, oof. Now, the next one, Buzz, is the 1990 Grand Slam Cup Munich, played in Munich, the semi-final between David Wheaton and Brad Gilbert. Now, what, what was a Grand Slam Cup? Do you have any idea? Yeah, it was a crazy money-making idea uh, of the right. Germans. It was at the time of 1990, so Germany was in the grip of Boris Becker and Steffi Graf fever. So tennis was going off, right? and they threw money into this ridiculous event. Okay, This is how much money was involved here. Gilbert and Wheaton were playing in a semi-final to play Sampras. The loser of the final, the loser of the final, was going to pick up $1 million. This is 1990. So in other words, what you're saying is the winner of this match was guaranteed, even if they lost a $1 million. Yes. And I'm sure that that is playing a huge part in the imbroglio. David Wheaton is a special person. He's never said anything derogatory against anybody. He did what he had to do. But David uh, Wheaton is a person that will be successful, not flamboyant or in the limelight, but laid back, very kind. And you only wish that if you had a daughter, would marry a person like David Wheaton. Now we just heard Nick Bollettieri styling the virtues of David Wheaton. Uh, I don't know if Brad Gilbert has a daughter, 
But one thing I do know is that there's no way in the world he would want her to marry David Wheaton, even though Nick is telling us that David Wheaton would be the man any father would be proud to have the daughter marry. Brad Gilbert, not so. Not so much. Not so much. Now, David Wheaton, of course, is a pro in the late 80s and the 90s involved in that spat with Gilbert, who was a top 10 player and, of course, went on to coach Agassi and Roddick, among others, now uh, very highly regarded tennis, tennis commentator. Now, they had to be separated over a disputed line call where Gilbert charged at Wheaton. He charged at him, okay? He's not standing still pointing. He's charging. So what do you mean he charged? I mean, what the hell does that mean? He rushed up at him and he pushed him. But over in his net? arms. No, around the, what, no I think they were around the side of the net. I mean, looking at, I think it was in close-up that I saw this footage, but it was somewhere on a tennis court well, during, I hope, I hope during so. this match. Now, Wheaton shoved back with his chest. He used his Wheaton. chest. He didn't use his arms. He decided... To retaliate. Wheaton had very weak arms. With his chest. But one hell of a chest. One of the strongest chests in tennis at the time. Incredible chest. Yeah. But the point I want to make is this is what happens to human beings when ridiculous amounts of money come into play. David Wheaton sounds like the most placid chap you could ever hope to meet. And look what's happening. A million dollars, he's turning into a maniac. His aggression had a price. Yeah. Brad Gilbert was no choir boy. But still, this is what's happened. Any man who writes a book called Winning Ugly is no choir boy. No, definitely not. As we were going to commercial at the end of the last game, watch this as they reach the chair area. Watch Sperlea kind of whistling along there, and it looks as though she deliberately uh, collided with her opponent, Venus Williams, uh, stepping out of her stride to get... uh, her leg, her knee, it appeared, into the leg of uh, Venus Williams. Isn't so. this beautiful? Isn't this all women's tennis yeah. needs? Oh, man. So we just heard a clip there mm. from the 1997 US Open semifinal between Venus Williams, a very young Venus Williams, oh, yeah. mm. and Arena Spilia. Now, during a changeover, Venus Williams was walking back to her chair, and Spilia bumped into her, but there was a feeling of get out of my way Mm. or I've got a right to walk here too. It was a sort of interesting one. She claimed later that Williams was arrogant and didn't move. Mm. Billy went on to lose the match after, and she actually held match points. Mm. So it's interesting how these things can actually affect the game itself. Mm. But Williams was unfazed by it afterwards. Look, I don't know what your opinion of it is, but to me watching that, there was no way in the world Venus was doing anything even mildly aggressive. She was literally just minding her own business. And you can see Spalia make a beeline into her pathway. That's what I thought. Mm. Venus doesn't even seem to be aware that she's sort of going there. Yeah. I think she's in her own or just going, walking back to her chair in a straight line. It's not as if she was trying to, mm. you know, dominate her by getting there first yeah. or doing anything. She was just it, walking. It was a nasty incident. And Venus Williams' father, uh, Richard, was quoted in the press as calling Spilia an ugly white turkey. I would actually like to hear you at Richard Williams. Does he know any handsome white turkeys? What's his baseline here? I don't understand. Well, you'd assume there would be a baseline there. If you're going to call somebody an ugly something, the assumption is that there, there is a beautiful, there's a beautiful version of what you're calling it, but you happen to be an ugly one. So why didn't Richard Williams roll up to a press conference with the beautiful white circuit? Because he couldn't find one. Because he was lying. 
I'm not holding against the guy, but no. come on. No, well, he's defending his daughter, which he has every right to do. And Spalia had some history in the regard of oh, behaviour. Yeah, she was quite mouthy, wasn't afraid to, to come out with an expletive here and there. Mm. And I don't know why Venus rubbed her up the wrong way. Especially, she was it jealousy? Was it? I don't know what. The clash of cultures, perhaps. Yeah. You don't no. think it was just the, the finishing off 75 years earlier, what, what Mallory and Longland started, but didn't quite finish in terms of the physical contact? Was there any, any thought, do you think? Do you think Spillia had watched some of the pilots oh. of that match between... Um... Well, I don't know if any footage exists. Maybe she read about it and imagined, I will continue the work of Mollen Mallory and Venus Williams, who reminds me of Susan Longland. Maybe Mollen Mallory came to her in a dream. And said in a Norwegian accent, Spalia, walking her path. Yes, I mean, Spalia spoke seven different languages and one of them is Norwegian. So it's, so, not, it's not really a fanciful theory at I all. I think we've solved it there, just in, in one hit. Look, look, it's, so, look, it's so funny how he puts his bottles. Look at this, look at this. He's just meticulous about that. It's, it's, I don't think he even knows he's doing it anymore. He's done it for so long. It's like almost, he knows where he wants to put it, but I think it's not even. It's so subconscious. Let's see when he walks back. No, he does. He's going to step on the line. Rafa and his water bottles, Buzz. Now you can say, well, hang on. We're supposed to be talking about people duking it out here on the tennis court. Remo, hang on. We're supposed to be. Okay, go on. <laughs> and now we're going to talk about Rafa and his water bottles. And I think this is worthy of inclusion. Because again, it represents an aspect of physicality on a tennis court where somebody or something is being hit. Now, it doesn't have to be another person, does it, Buzz? It doesn't have to be, by definition. And we know how close and dear Rafa holds his water bottles. They're a very important part of his arsenal. He places them in specific directions and yep. specific places oh, when, yeah. in his end. And oh, he's yeah. very, very, very guard, very, very... How many berries? He's very, very guarding. That doesn't make any sense. Guarded. He's very, very particular. Did you say particular? No, I said guarded. Okay. That's what what I thought you were trying to say. I don't know what the hell I was trying to say. (laughs) Yeah, now there are two instances, Buzz. Damn podcast. (laughs) The players that opponents of Rafa have taken to Rafa's water bottles with a vengeance. First one was in 2013 in Monte Carlo, where the Australian player, Marinko Matsovic, was getting toweled up by Nadal. Not literally. Well, I hope not. You pay extra for that. And knocked over Nadal's models, but did it with a smile, done in jest, almost to say, I'm getting killed here. I've got to try something. Yeah, okay. Now, the second instance is a little different. This is with Lucas Rasol. 2014 Wimbledon. Quite a nasty match. A lot of animosity being displayed. And Rizal basically kicked over Nadal's bottles. As a show of uh, defiance, whatever you want to call it, but basically personal possessions of Nadal, he knocked them, kicked them over, which upset Nadal considerably. So it's almost like an invasion of personal space. It's like Mm. saying it's an extension of Nadal. Mm. I kick these, I kick you, buddy. I think that's the way Nadal saw it and that's the way Uncle Tony explained it to him afterwards because Nadal, of course, the labels must be facing outwards. I don't know if this is something that only pertains to his water bottles, Buzz, the label thing. Do you know, does it 
traverse other areas of his life with labels? It does traverse other areas of his life. Right. He, he has to have objects facing in certain directions. Now, obviously, it's a problem where you have a spherical object that has no label on it. And he will demand of Cisco that they be placed due north. And she will say to him, Raph, I have no idea what you're talking about. Tennis ball, due north, one without any markings on it. And he will walk off in a half and she would just look, you know, look at the camera, if there's a camera there, and go, hey. What about with clothing? Does he reverse his shirt so that the labels are facing out? No. No? <laughs> he doesn't do that. No. no I'm sorry. It might sound ridiculous to no, you, but, but, but hypocrisy, I've, well, well, hypocrisy. <laughs> and I've seen him once walking around. And this, this didn't happen on one day. With a coat hanger sticking out the top of, of his suit. This was a whole week where he was doing some promotional work. Which way was the hanger facing? Well, it was facing, it was upward, but nobody said anything because we weren't sure if it was, you know... Number, Absent-mindedness. He was number one in the world at the time, and it's not the sort of thing you bring up, but you for a whole week, no. and with different suits. You can't bring up coat hangers with number ones. No, no, but is it the sort of thing that he would do? He won't wear a suit unless the coat hanger is still in it. I've seen him wear suits without coat hangers, but then again, I've seen him wear suits with coat hangers, so it's a hard one to actually, you know... Thank goodness he doesn't have to wear a suit when he plays. I mean, cause all manner of problems. The one aspect that he has difficulty with his pets, because he likes their faces pointed a certain way, and you know it's very hard to have a dog or a small bear sometimes for him facing in a particular way. They have to be very heavily trained. I think it's fascinating that he's petrified of dogs. Still, he owns one as a pet, but I feel sorry for that dog. It's, it's really no life, is it? It's no life for that dog yeah. or his tailor's cat. No. Let's take the gloves off now and look at psychological warfare that goes on during a tennis match and which goes on a lot more than you think under your very nose, I suspect. Now, Buzz, you're a, a soccer buff. Tell me about football. Okay, sorry. Tell me about the hand of God. The hand of God? When I say the hand of God, what response does that evoke in you? Instantly, I think of the 1986 World Cup. Mm -hmm. That was famously Diego Maradona's. Mm -hmm. The match against England, which I can't remember was a quarter or a semi-final. But it was at the pointy end of the tournament. Pointy end, and Maradona had scored arguably the greatest goal in World Cup history, mm. then followed it up with a header over the goalkeeper, that slow motion replay showed he had lifted his fist up and actually punched the ball over the goalkeeper's head. What you had in that match was the sublime artistry of one of the greatest players who ever lived mm. and the sublime bastardry of one of the greatest players who ever lived, all in one hit. Oh, very poetic. What about when I talk about the hand of Hennen? What of response does that evoke in you? The hand of Hannon. Mm. Are you talking about Justine Hannon? I'm talking about Justine. Are you talking about Louis Hannon? No. Because that's a different issue altogether. No, no, no. no. We wouldn't be able to talk about Louis on this podcast for legal reasons. I'm talking about Justine. Justine Hannon. Mm. Hold it. Are we talking about something pretty subtle here? Mm. Are we talking about an indication she gave Mm. with Serena? Yes. Go on. That's all I've got. I've We're just talking memory. 2003 French Open semi-final where Serena is well on her way to winning that match. They split the first sets. Serena's up 4-2. 
on serve. She goes to serve. She sees Enon raising a hand up, indicating usually that you're not ready to receive. Happens instantaneously so that Serena serves, acknowledges it, and gets ready to serve the first ball again. Inquires to the umpire, first ball, right? And then a conversation ensues between the umpire and Serena, saying, she told me she wasn't ready. Umpire looks over at Enon, quiet as a mouse. And you know how quiet Justine Enon could be when she wanted to be quiet. And I know how quiet a mouse can be. Exactly. You put the two together. Yeah. There's not much happening. So very controversial. Very so Hannon didn't own up to it. Now, here's the thing. No. At those moments, those pressure moments, someone's true character, is it revealed, Remo? Under pressure, mm. in a crisis moment, is yeah. someone's true character revealed? Oh. I'm not saying Justine Hannon is a cheat. I'm not accusing her of anything. No. If she looks back at that, I wonder if she looks back at that and goes, you know... Or did it come out of resentment for Serena? Who knows? Mm. It doesn't look good. It it doesn't look good at all. And and it's gone down as one of those keynote moments um, at the French Open. Again, Serena's had a chequered history in terms of the response. But hold it, uh, Remo, did Mm. Justin Hannon win the match? She did win that, didn't she? Oh, yeah. It turned. It turned. On that point? On that hand signal that was covered up. But we've got a, a... couple of instances here and we don't want to get too bogged down in detail we just want to touch on some interesting moments where things got fiery verbally well there's some unexpected ones that are always interesting to me Mm. when when someone who has a character that is not aggressive or whatever Mm. suddenly does something that seems out of character Mm. and you almost listen to it a bit more when that happens because you think well what's going on there yeah great examples one martin del potro Mm. uh, one of my favorite players just a wonderful tennis player well he's known as the unassuming argentinian is his nickname it's a long nickname it's a very long but it suits the man how did that stick how the hell did that yeah i think there's an acronym of some sort but i can't remember it (laughs) Always the same, eh? You never change. He was playing um, Andy Murray uh, relatively early for Murray, I think. Are mm. they the same age, roughly? I think so. Yeah. They played in juniors together, so they would be. Right. Yeah. So this is in 2008. Mm. And Del Potro actually made a comment about Murray's mother mm. in one of the changeovers. Del Potro said, always the same. Yeah. Meaning mm. that Murray and his mother had not changed from when they were young. So there must be a history there. Well, you would think so. I mean, just backtracking a little bit, Potro had tried to drive a ball into Murray's head during the match. Well, Murray, during the match, because during, if it was d- at night, when Murray was you know, asleep in bed. Yeah, no, no. It was with during, a hammer. It was, during, it was during the match. So that set things off. There's obviously stuff that's happened there. And... 
I'm not talking out of school here, Buzz, you're a very, very big admirer of Judy Murray. You've said it often that she's your idea of a perfect woman. Now, how do you feel when you, you see an instance like this where Judy Murray and Andy, you like Andy too, is being attacked by the unassuming Argentinian known as Del Potro? I noticed when you said that you had a wry smile on your face because you know how I feel about this. I am not over the top about this. I do not hate Judy Murray. As you are, you were trying to put me into a corner. Hate's a strong word. I don't. I I used to find her a little irritating. Mm. I was very happy when Yvonne Lendl removed her from, you know, the tennis players box. Physically removed her, picked her up. She was kicking and screaming. He had her (laughs) over his shoulder. It was a terrible scene. It really was. Didn't she make a noise? Now, there is a podcast about, you know... That fa- incident. Family, <laughs> that incident. Absolutely. It's coming up, okay. folks. Yeah. It's a beauty. For those of you who aren't familiar with what you've just heard, I'm sure most of you are, this was the night that Nick Kyrgios took trash talk to another level. This wasn't trash talk, Buzz against his opponent, Stan Wawrinka. What sort of talk was this? This wasn't trash. This was what sort of talk? This was indictable. uh, Yeah. It was actually a terrible moment, I thought, because Mm. it's one thing to say something about your opponent or whatever, but when you drag your opponent's partner into his girlfriend, Mm. she's got nothing to do with it. To bring her into it and malign her name, I thought was terrible. Curious has come out later and said, oh, I was a bit of fun, this and that. And I thought, oh, mate, you still don't get it. No. It was really bad for her. I mean, and let's not beat around the bush here, Buzz. It, the quote was, Coconarchus banged your girlfriend. Sorry to tell you that, mate. Now, I'm confused. Like, the first part of the statement, I understand. Why did then Curios proceed to apologise? Well, it's one of those things where I think he was, it was a mock apology. Oh. As if to say, you know, oh, sorry, mate, but I'm just going to give you this bad news. So it wasn't a genuine, it wasn't informing him of bad news. And like, you know, somebody says, I hear that your sister is in hospital. I'm very sorry to hear that. It it wasn't. ah, It wasn't along those lines. It was more along the lines of, I'm sorry to give you this bad news. I am not sorry to give you this bad news. At all. Well, I've misinterpreted Really? And I thought Kyrgios was being hard done by. I thought, okay, he's broken some bad news to Stan, but he's had the decency to follow it up with a heartfelt apology. But that wasn't the case. No. <laughs> I'm Fred Stolly. I'm a uh, Hall of Famer in the International Tennis Hall of Fame, the Australian uh, Hall of Fame and the Australian Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, my parents played tennis and... Uh, we concentrated on teams in those days. When you were going to school and you're going to primary school, you'd come home from school after school and you'd pick up with four or five of your buddies and go down to the local courts. We didn't have country clubs. So like what that. happened on the day that John McEnroe went for the throat? To help answer this question, I'm joined by Teddy Shingles. Teddy, thank you for coming in. It's always a pleasure to see your beaming face. No problem, Remo. It's wonderful to be here again. Now, just to set the scene here, we're talking about the 1981 US Open 
doubles semi-final. There was a little bit of needle beforehand. You could feel it in the air. Now, this was as a result of John Newcomb writing an article where he criticised John McEnroe, I believe. Well, Nuke was not backward in coming forward, was he? He'd throw the red racket at anybody. He criticised me a number of times. He sent me some articles. They weren't published, but they were just articles he'd send me in the post. I'd read them and say, well, what, what is going on here? He went out of his way to write these articles. I don't know why. Mm. I don't know why his wife didn't stop him. No, right. Let's move on now to the moment, the key moment yes. of this match. So Fleming and Mackinac basically um, destroying Stolly and Newcomb in this best of five set match. They take the first two sets quite easily. It looks like it's one-way traffic. It did seem like that one-way traffic. It was certainly... Mm. Uh, in the crowd around me, there was a feeling that this is coming here over very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Nobody, nobody left their seat, though, really no, interestingly. No, yes. no, no, not at all. This moment happened in the third set where, again, it was John McEnroe who essentially took aim at Fred Stolly and collected Stolly in the throat with a tennis ball. Uh, Stolly went down like a sack of spuds. And John Newcomb, well, I don't think John Newcomb was seeing straight when that happened. Would you like to tell us what happened next? Well, it's one of those moments on a tennis court, and certainly in any arena, <clears throat> when something happens, there's a low burst of guttural exclamation from the crowd. Mm. People were appalled at this. And not just, these are Americans, they were going for their American team, but they thought, well, hello, this isn't the tennis that we were brought up on, mm. any of them. Stolly went down. Mm. There were some parts of the crowd that were delighted at this eventuality. I'm assuming that they were people who had never perhaps seen a tennis match and and thought, I really like what I'm seeing here. I didn't know that tennis was like this. This is really exciting. There may have been some of those. And there were just some of those who just didn't like Stolly and wanted to see an end. I thought it was a terrible thing. My terrible thing. I, I know Fred quite well, and I, I was I stood up. And if you know me, I don't stand up at the tennis very often. No. I stood up and craned my neck to see him lying there. He looked like an angel, looking up at the heavens, as if a hand would come down and lift mm. him up into the clouds. He was, he was beautiful, mm. a beautiful story. Meanwhile, John Newcomb was almost possessed by the devil. Well, it was a very finely tuned team they were when one went down like an angel the other had to do the exact opposite mm. to balance it out if you know what I mean it was like an average or a mean a standard mean I don't even know what that means but you know what I'm saying and John you know he did react Yeah, you could hear the thump of his head on the, on the court it was very very mm. frightening anything could have happened at that yeah. point um, there were people around me who were who were talking amongst themselves and saying, well, that's the end of Stolly. Yeah. And one of them started to organise a memorial service for him. On the spot. On the spot. And I think, that, well, I congratulated that person later for being so so forward-thinking. Proactive, yeah. Proactive is the word I was after. Thank yeah, you. That's Thank okay. you. Really. Now, we, we've yeah. discussed earlier in this podcast uh, the symbolism of crossing the net. Yes. Now, John Newcomb, this time when he crossed the net, he was fuming. He ran across racket, handle up, and pretty much stood toe-to-toe, face-to-face with John McEnroe. Well, it was incredible. I mean, my seats weren't very good that year. It was a little higher than normal. Mm. I usually had courtside, but after a little stoush I had with the president of the U.S. Tennis Association, I, I found myself about four rows back. It was... You demoted, it, Teddy. Well, I felt a bit like I was in the nosebleed four, four seats back. I was usually right on the edge. And mm. In fact, Nuke at one point looked around, and he looked for me, and he, he couldn't find me. He looked up and saw me, and he frowned, 
And I thought, yes, Nuke, here I am. Now, from that vantage point, I didn't see everything crystal clear, but it was very, very obvious that Newcomb was challenging McEnroe and saying some very, very, very tough words. Mm. McEnroe lost his, how would you say, his aggressive demeanour. He looked a little scared to me. Mm. John Newcomb has two sides to him, as we know. There's John and there's Jack. Mm. And that was very Jack to me. He... Mm. He could have taken McEnroe apart and McEnroe knew it. Mm. He wasn't going to get into a stout with this man. No. In any case, there's Peter Fleming on the side, getting ready to run. Mm. There's, uh, now, is, is this the point where Fred Stolley, still on the ground, started screaming out something about the Titanic? And which, I believe, saved McEnroe from a thrashing. I talked to Fred years later about this because I, I, I was confused. I thought perhaps I'd misheard. Right. And yes, there was something about... There was women and children first. Obviously, he shouted that first. And then he said something about the boiler room. I thought, what, what, what's going on here? And, yeah. And, uh, you know, he got to his feet and he, he started looking around for something. I, I, I thought, well, I don't know what's going on here. He was looking for the lifeboats. Right. Okay. And then he came to his senses yeah. after everything settled down. Now, mm. Nuke obviously came back to his senses. Mm. Nothing happened. Yeah. The crowd there. Well, if you want to get a tennis crowd involved, this was unbelievable theatre. Mm. Unprecedented theatre. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, possibly the most violent thing that I think has ever happened on a tennis court. Well, it could have escalated very quickly. Yeah. I mean, very territorial John Newcomb. Mm. I've seen it before. I remember once he was walking down the street and I, I said, hi, Nuke. He was, he, he was in his own world and I accidentally brushed his shoulders to walk past because I was ready to say hello to him. Yeah. And he turned to me and he actually had a tennis racket with him and he held the butt into my face again. The man has form. Hmm. No, well, okay. I, I'm not sure what happened on that occasion, but just let's go back to what happened that day at Flushing Meadows. No, certainly. The most interesting thing in some ways, and this is tennis for you, the moment that Stolly copped that ball in the throat, went down like a sack of spuds and the incident happened, Newcomb and Stolly make the greatest of comebacks and get the match to a fifth set. Fred Stolly starts playing tennis reminiscent of his best during that period in the 60s when he faced off with Emmo in those Wimbledon finals. Now, amazing. Did something trigger in Stolly that blow to the throat? Well, it's a common thing in sport. You know that, Rima. You probably yourself. You probably experienced it. Mm. Something happens to you on the court that you think is unfair or perhaps out of line. There's something in you that kicks up and says, well, I'm not going to put up with this. And even if you're being beaten, mm. suddenly it can galvanize you mm. in a way hitherto unknown. Yeah. Now, I think that happened with Fred. Mm. I think it was partly that and partly it was survival mode because he thought he was still on the Titanic. Right, right. And, you know, that was part of it. And mm. he was playing for his life there. Yeah. Um, but it was an incredible situation because I think the Americans were a little cocky. Mm. And then the, the tide turned. Mm. And when the Australians won that fourth set, mm. I think it dented the pride of the Americans in a way that yeah. it was hard to calculate. Now, of course, the Americans went on to win. Mm, they did. But... I think the, the, the moral victory certainly was with the Australians mm. and these great, great champions in the twilight of their career, if oh. I can put it that way. Oh, yeah, yeah, most and certainly. Particularly Fred Stolling was quite a bit older than John Newcomb, I'm oh, imagining. Yeah. I mean, oh, he must have been in his early 40s yes. and Newcomb in his late 30s. But the joke, of course, from Newcomb was that Stolling's game improved immensely 
after he caught the ball in the throat. Now, what did the crowd make during the rest of that match whenever Stolly missed a shot and John Newcomb went up and punched Stolly in the throat? Did they understand the the link there in terms of what Newcomb was trying to do to, to raise the level of Stolly's game? Well, again, there was the disconnect between the Australian and, and US way of approaching yeah. things. There was that. Yeah. There was also just the idea of what is going on here. Mm-hmm. But it was working, and I, I, we were all worried about Stolly because he'd gone down, and, and he looked like oh, he looked like an angel. Remo, you you have no idea how he mm. looked on that ground. Mm. I almost wept. Well, there are some people, don't you think, who when they sleep, when they're in repose, almost physically something changes, and they can either become beautiful, or sometimes, unfortunately, not so beautiful. Fred is one of those lucky ones, I believe, who, when he sleeps, as you say. He has the look of an angel. Well, not so fast on that, Remo, because I talked to his wife and said sometimes in the middle of the night she'll wake up mm. and turn over Yeah, and she'll it... scream out, screech out and run from the room. It's happened more than once. Yeah. And other times mm. she'll roll over and have a look. Angelic. As if Raphael had painted a corner angel. So she never knew which Stolly she would get. She never knew, but that I think it kept the marriage alive. Teddy, I think that's the perfect place to end this. Again, thank you. Well, give my best a buzz. I will, I will. Thank okay. you. Thank you, Teddy. Well, good evening. Hello? Mate, it's Remo. I don't want to alarm you, but I think we're being followed. What? I think we're being followed. Right, we're doing the Infamy podcast. I think you're getting a little paranoid. No, I checked. And it actually says that people are following us. Remo, they're subscribers. It's a good thing. So we want people to follow us? Yes. Oh, OK, then. Can you hang on? There's someone at the front door.